So good morning. What we talked about was three men of faith. You know, they had a walk. And we all have a walk. And we use that terminology of a walk to describe our life. We said that Enoch walked with God. And God took him. So he didn't taste death. Enoch, if we could meet anyone, he's probably one that I would want to meet in heaven. Find out what it was like. Outside of Christ, he had to live a life that was so closely aligned with God. And so that's just intriguing to me because he only lived 365 years, I believe it was. In the midst of when they were living seven, eight hundred, nine hundred, his grandfather Methuselah, no, his grandson Methuselah, nine hundred and sixty-nine years. He walked with God. Noah was also one of his. And so Noah may have heard the stories of Enoch and how he walked with God, may have come to faith in part because of that, we said. And uh, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. The world had become corrupt, and things weren't like God wanted it to be. And so God purposed to destroy it. But Noah found favor. One translation says, found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he commanded Noah to build an ark. For 120 years, Noah labored in building that ark. And during that time, Peter tells us he was a preacher of righteousness. Proclaiming, change your ways, probably. Practice God's judgment and obedience so that you can save yourself on the day because God's going to destroy this world with a flood. Not knowing what a flood was, they laughed probably at him for 120 years. But Noah proved to be right. And then we move to Abraham, again a grandson later on in that same family line. Great-grandson, great-great-grandson of Enoch. And so now, God calls Abram. I'd like to know what was in Abram's life as well when God called him from the land of Haran, saying, get out of your country. Leave your father's, leave your relatives behind. Your father's house. Go to a land that I will show you and I'll bless you and make your name great. And through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I don't think we had anybody on Zoom because it quit transmitting. So I don't know what's going on with it. But if anybody complains, that's what happened. But anyway. So Abraham left. He had a few bumps along the way, as we do as well, right? Our life of faith, our walk with God hasn't always been as smooth as what we would like it to be. As what we sometimes think the lives of God's holy men and women throughout the ages lived. Filled with bumps along the way. Distractions. And finally, after a few distractions, a few falls, a few stumbles, God tells Abraham, as we said last Sunday, take up and offer Isaac, your son, on the altar. Sacrifice him to me. A whole bird offering. And all Abraham did was said, yes, Lord. We know he said, yes, Lord, because he prepared everything and he gets Isaac the son of the promise now, and gets the wood, and they go to the land of Moriah, to the mountain, to sacrifice him. You know, with such great examples, we would think that God's people would live a tremendous life. 
and that they would just live and walk by faith. And we sing that song sometimes, living by faith. You know, we're walking with God by faith. And Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it's verse 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yeah. Today I want to take a look at two men that we're very familiar with in the Old Testament to continue on this idea of our walk with God. Two men that, well, they were very prominent in Israel's history. One was David. The other was Solomon. I want to compare their lives just a little bit so that we can see how did it turn out for them. We're not passing judgment on either one of them. We know that they both had their successes and their failures. But let's look first of all at the life of David and see what we can glean from him that may not have been in Solomon's life that maybe caused him to, well, do some things that God was not pleased with. First of all, what we know about David. When you think about David, what comes to your mind? Well, I'll tell you what, there are several things that may come to your mind. One of them, which is a statement in Scripture, that David was a man after God's own heart. It means he loves God, he wanted to follow and serve God. He was a man after God's own heart. We should be such men and women of faith that we could be noted by, our, by God as someone after his heart. But was he always? I think ultimately he was, always, even though he had some hiccups too along the way. But we're first introduced to David during the reign of King Saul. Israel wanted a king. And God had warned them about what a king would do. And Samuel was so crushed by it, and God said, give them what they want. Now I'm paraphrasing on that one. I know Scripture doesn't say it quite that way. But that's reads revised, okay? Give them what they want. And he did. And Saul was there. Now Saul, as Scripture tells us, he was a good-looking guy. I think he stood head and shoulders above the rest of the Israelites. I mean, you could look at him and say, all right, that is going to be some kind of a king. Look at him. He's handsome. He's tall. He's big. He's strong. He's going to command armies. And we will be successful in the eyes of the world. And maybe they should have wondered about success in the eyes of God. Well, we know that Saul lost the throne because of disobedience to God. And God said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and your family. I'm going to give it to another. So Jesse goes up to the house. So Samuel goes up to the house of Jesse and said, I need to see your sons. And none of them passed muster. Now, I know that Samuel at first was looking at the eyes through the eyes of a man, saying, this is going to be the one, he's good looking, he's handsome, he's tall, he's big, you know. No, it's not the one. He goes through all of Jesse's sons, and none of them are the one. And he tells Jesse, he says, Isn't, do you have another son? Yeah, I do. He's out tending the sheep. He says, well, go get him. And when David gets there, he anoints him as king over Israel. Now, mind you, Saul is still on the throne. He poses no threat to Saul. David does. And so now we learn that David is the anointed one. He's going to be king in Israel, but it's going to take some time. And there will be some struggles along the way that David will run into. 
Well, one of those struggles was in 1 Samuel. There was a man by the name of Goliath, champion of the Philistine army. And you know the story there in 1 Samuel chapter 19. This one was going to be tough. Well, verse 17 actually. Chapter 17. And so, David goes up to see his brothers, take them some food, report back to his father what's going on. And he hears this Philistine mocking, slandering God. And everybody in Israel is afraid. And so David says, I'll take him on. I will handle him. I will fight this man. And in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, it says in verse 33, Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. If he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David had confidence and trust in God that he learned as but a youth when he was out tending sheep. Because his life depended on it. Well, we know the story. He goes out, he doesn't have any weapons of war, but he picks up some rocks, puts them in a sling, and one strikes Goliath in the forehead. Goliath tumbles and falls. He's dead. And David cuts off his head with Goliath's own sword. And now the word went out that David has killed, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul knows his time is limited. God has sent an evil spirit, and David goes into the court, and he plays a liar to soothe him. The music does. He's given one of Saul's daughter, Michael, in marriage. But Saul, in his insanity, the evil spirit, he tries to kill him. David becomes best friends with Jonathan, Saul's son. They are very, very close. And Saul, you know, Jonathan reveals to David, yes, my father is going to kill you. You need to flee. And so we read in 2 Samuel about those times of 1 Samuel about David fleeing Saul and how God was with him. We also are very familiar with the passage in 2 Samuel in chapter 13. It was, it was tough. Chapter 11. David has been trusting in God for a long time. As a youth, killing Goliath, fleeing from Saul. And now David, when he should have been out at battle with the front lines with the troops, it says in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David remained behind at Jerusalem. This is going to be the beginning of some tragedy in David's life. Because he saw Bathsheba one night as she was bathing. And he calls for her. And you know the story of what happened. An adulterous relationship. A child is conceived. He's got to cover it up. And so he calls for Uriah the Hittite to 
make people think that Uriah went home to his wife and they had a child. He wouldn't do it because he was an honorable man. So David has him killed. Well, in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, that's the rebuke by Nathan of David. And David repents. And you can read of Psalm 51, Psalm 32, and you see David's sincere desire to get back on the path. He wants to be a man after God's own heart. He wants to follow him. But Absalom tries to take the throne. David has to flee for his life because his son's coming out to kill him. And you read through the Psalms and you see those things that are there about David and how he fled. And you read his confidence. Psalm 3, and I believe verse and Psalm 4 are both of them. One is a morning prayer, Psalm 3, that's headed a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Saying, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying, My soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord. He answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You break the teeth of the... Excuse me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. I believe the Psalm 4 is an evening prayer that David had, probably again fleeing from Absalom, his son. David showing his confidence because he repented fully of his sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah the Hittite. And God gave him and protected his throne. But David wasn't going to live forever. David had sons. He had many sons. He and Bathsheba had another son. His name was Solomon. Solomon would have probably been one of the much younger sons that would have been born to David. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, it tells us that in verse 5, And of all of my sons, for the Lord has given me many, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And so he charged Israel, this is the Lord's doing. And he charged Solomon in verse 9 of the same chapter, You, Solomon, my son, Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart, with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, you will be found. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Now Solomon was going to build the temple of God. I believe also we could think of that house as building that kingdom of God and keeping them strong and faithful. That's the life of David. And Solomon starts off really well as we look at his life. But at the end of his life, it doesn't end on the same note as David. You know, David, it says in 1 Kings, I'll get back into 1 Kings chapter 1, when David died. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried at the city of David. 
And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned 7 in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Solomon's king. Maybe his first mistake as king, or at some time in his life, was he takes an Egyptian wife and made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, chapter 3 and verse 1. You see, there were some things that Solomon forgot along the way. And I don't know if that was because David didn't take the time to teach him adequately, or Solomon just ultimately wanted to do his own thing. Because he was in charge of his own life. Well, Solomon, we know of him as great faith. God comes to him by night in a dream. And he says in chapter 3 of 1 Kings, at verse 5, Ask me... Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in uprightness of heart toward you. That should have been a great example to Solomon. He continues on and says, You have kept him for this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. You've made your servant a king in, front, in place of my father David, although I'm a little child. Now, I read that Solomon was probably anywhere between 12 and 25 when he became king. Most scholars that I read, most people come up and said probably between 20 and 25. And there's a lot that you get into looking at the ages of the children and how long he served. And it's very technical. You know, you have to go through and do the math. This isn't a math lesson, okay? But he says, you've done this. I'm a little child means I'm ignorant. I'm young. You raised me up for this day and I'm not confident. Now, have you ever been in a place in your life where you trained for something, you studied for something, and now it's on you? I should have talked to Brother Lee over here about this with his medical school training and how that first time when it's, you know, I don't know, have you done any surgery, Lee? What was the first one like? A little nervous? Yeah, I would be terrified. And I didn't train for it, but I'd be terrified. That's the way it is. You've trained for that day, and now that day's come, and it's going to be there. I hope I do it. I hope I make it. And Solomon is there saying, I know I was raised for this time. But I don't know what to do. I don't know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people. You've chosen a great people. Too many to be numbered or counted for a multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this great people. Solomon says, I don't know what I'm doing, Lord. Just give me wisdom. So I don't know what to do. And God said, because you asked for wisdom and not for the lives of your enemies, for long life, for riches, I'm going to give you wisdom like no one has ever had. And I'm also going to give you all of these other things you didn't ask for. Because you really caught what you needed. And that was wisdom. And Solomon awoke, behold, because a dream. He comes to Jerusalem, he stood before the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. Next thing we're told is that two prostitutes come to him. They each had a baby. 
and one died during the night. And they were arguing over who's because one, the baby that died, she switches it with the woman that had a baby that was alive, claims it as her own. But mothers know their children. And so they're pleading their case. And we see Solomon's wisdom. When one says, no, it was her child that died, and this is my child that's alive. No, it's her child that died, this is my child. How do you make a decision? And Solomon said, okay, we'll make a decision. Bring me a sword. Divide the living child in two. Give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive, said it was her son, said, Oh, my Lord, give the living child uh, to the other. By no means put it to death. And she says, I don't want my child to die. I'll gladly let him live for the sake of living. Solomon knew right then whose child it was. The woman whose child had died, she didn't care. It's not her child. She had no maternal bond. Solomon was a wise man when he did that. And later on in chapter 10, after we read of Solomon building the temple and his house and the house for some of his wives, we start learning some other things about Solomon and his life. We see the Queen of Sheba coming down and she said, Of your wisdom, the half has not been told. You are truly a wise man. So from prostitutes in his, maybe his first decision, to entertaining the queen of a foreign land. Then things start, we see, to unfold a little bit. During all this time, we're not told all the details here, but we get a glimpse of it here in chapter 10. Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the businesses of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. I mean, Solomon was wealthy. I did a calculation as near as I could, and I think that came up to about $5.1 billion in today's dollars. One year came to his kingdom. And that wasn't all of it, but that was a lot of it. Well, Solomon was quite wealthy, and it tells us, and it says in verse 23, Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. They all sought his presence. Solomon gathered together chariots, verse 26, and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. He made silver as common in Jerusalem as a stone, cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses from Egypt and Ku was the king, then the king's traders received them at a coup price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, a horse for 150. So throughout, through, so through all, through the kings and traders, they exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. And that's how chapter 10 ends. Ends pretty well. But it shows us that Solomon forgot some of the things that God had said. Makes me wonder, wow, what would it be like if we had to do some similar things? Chapter 11 just says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. He had 700 wives. That's terrible. To complicate that, he had 700 mother-in-laws. That really had to be bad. In addition to that, he had 300 concubines. I don't know what he was thinking. Surely he couldn't have been the wisest man on the earth. 
to have 700 wives and 300 concubines. But maybe what it shows is in his wisdom he forgot some things, the practical knowledge. You see, when Solomon was old, his wives, verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David his father. Solomon went after the Ashtaroth, uh, after Milcom, after Moloch, after Chemosh. He went after all these foreign wives and sacrificed offerings to them. And so sadly it just says in verse 9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord God commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I'll not do it in your days, but I'll tear it out of the hand of your son. So it ends on a pretty sad note. Well, what can we learn from the lives of David and Solomon? Well, Longfellow, an American poet, said, Great is the art of beginning, but greater is the art of ending. Solomon may have, a good, may have had a good start, but he ended poorly. He should have learned what God had said. Now, one of the things that God had said, and had he learned this and taken it to heart, this really made me think, what about us? Where are we in all of this? Talking about the king that would be over Israel. He said, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now, can you imagine that? You know, when I was doing memory work in school back in the day, you know, go through and write each letter of the first letter of each word. Same so many times and get where I got it perfect, I'd say the next one. But can you imagine taking your Bible, all 66 books, and start writing them out by hand? That's the way the early scribes did it. You know, they would copy one Bible. They'd take it and they would write it out by hand meticulously, counting the words and the letters and the lines. And If there were three mistakes, they'd burn the paper. Think about that. How long would it take? Well, let's maybe challenge ourselves. Let's try to do a chapter. Try to write a book. Try to write the book of Psalms out next year. You can even take a head start and start today and see how long it takes you to copy, writing it out by hand, what it says. And what will happen, do you think, if you do that? You're going to be spending some time in the Psalms or in whatever book you write. Take a short book. Take the book of Ruth, four chapters. Take the book of Philemon in the New Testament. How long would it take you to copy it down? It wouldn't take that long. It's only one, one chapter. One short letter, 25 verses, I think. 
But by the time you get from the, word, the first word to the last word, you're probably going to know it because you're going to be going back and forth looking and writing and looking and writing. Solomon didn't do that, apparently. I don't know if David did it. I don't know if any of the kings in Israel did it. But had they done so, they would have learned some things. One of which is, don't acquire a lot of wealth and horses and chariots. Because Deuteronomy 17 also in verse 14 says, and following, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall possess it and dwell in it. And then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations of the earth that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. From one of your brothers, you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt to acquire many horses since the Lord has said you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now maybe we know Solomon is wise and we read the book of Ecclesiastes and I see the life of a bored man in the early part of Ecclesiastes. He had so much time on his hands, so much wealth, he could investigate and set his mind and heart to do whatever it was that he wanted. He's king. He's going to tell him you can't do that, right? But one of the things he did was he acquired great wealth, so much gold in Israel that silver is a stone. What do you do with a stone? You pick it up, you kick it, you throw it. If you're out by a river or a lake, you skip it across the water. Imagine taking a silver dollar and skipping it across the lake. I don't think so. It's worth about $23 today. I wouldn't want to do that. Solomon didn't pay attention to these things. And maybe because David had such a life of beginning of relying on God when he was at a youth, and Solomon grew up in a king's palace, he didn't go through some of those same struggles that David did. And so maybe Solomon in his wisdom started thinking I'm wise enough that I can make this choice and these foreign women won't bother me. They won't affect me. But little did he realize they were. So God took the kingdom from him. Well, what can we learn from all of this? We can learn that our walk has to mirror that of David. I admire Solomon for so many things, but he didn't walk in the ways of David, his father. And that's one of the ways that they describe the kings that followed in Judah after the kingdom was torn from Solomon. They walked in the ways of David his father, they walked faithfully. If they walked in the ways, they didn't walk in the ways of David, they were evil. And so the Israelite, the ten tribes, they walked in the way of evil, following the ways of their evil fathers. Not didn't say evil fathers, but following in the way of their fathers, they walked in evil. We have a responsibility to our children to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. My children are grown. You you know, we have to do what we can do. We have to be concerned about our children and our grandchildren to leave them a legacy. And how we do that is that we talk to them. And we tell them matters of faith that are important. You know, that's why I really think God's people had something going strongly for them. In Deuteronomy. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 6 as we studied it. Verses 5 and 6. It's been a while since we've talked about it. Or verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you, you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your gates, of your house and on your gates. Commit this to your life and to the lives of your children. And if we do that, we let them know that we're walking by faith, not by sight. And those struggles of life, they prove us. Peace in the midst of a struggle, as C.S. Lewis said, is that God is with us. We're all going to go through struggles. David went through struggles. Some of them were his own doing. But he stayed faithful to God. He became known as a man after God's own heart. Solomon had struggles. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he went the way and they took him away from God. All because he cared more, probably, it seems like, of amassing great wealth. And once he had a taste for it, he didn't want to let go of it. An old Roman proverb says, The more riches are like salt water, the more you drink, the more you thirst. Henry David Thoreau said, A man that is rich in in proportion to the number of things he can afford to do without. Jesus simply asks us, What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Somewhere along the line, Solomon didn't pick up on those thoughts. I don't know if it was David's fault, or if Solomon just missed that class that day. But somewhere along the line, Solomon failed. And if we fail, we fail our children. We fail our grandchildren. So as long as we can talk to them and instill in them... The need to follow God, because then we will be successful. They're going to make their own decision. I know that. But the proverb is true. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. You train them up according to the way that they can receive it. It would be one way of looking at that in the Hebrew grammar. You train them up according to their learning style. But you train them up in the bedrock principles that need to be listened to and heeded and followed so that they don't depart from it. I don't want to lay blame at David and I don't want to place too much blame on Saul. I don't know what happened there. But I know we have the lives of two kings in Israel who had both different upbringings. And one learned faith and even though he sinned, he still came back to God. And one learned faith, and he was pulled away because he entertained what his foreign wives had said. Let's serve other gods. They're just as good as yours. And so he did. And he lost. We have choices. And that's what I want us to know. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk with God daily. And that's what we have to choose to do and convey to our children, our grandchildren, to one another, that we're in this together and we're going to walk with God each day of our lives. So the question is, how is your walk? Are you going to walk in the footsteps of David? Or do you want to take a chance and walk in the footsteps of Solomon? The choice is ours. The choice is yours.
And I don't know where you are today, but I know the invitation of Jesus is always open. And so if you need to make a public declaration of your faith, you would like to do that, or you're struggling with something, and you want to ask for prayers of the saints, we're happy to take that. We want to pray with you. We want to pray for you. We want you to be blessed. As together we walk with God. So won't you please come to Jesus while together we stand and walk the same.